so when I was a kid, I wanted to be a singer actress. That's, and now I <laughs> am a wine educator and I work in hospitality. Um, but I will say that the skills that I learned in performing arts really, really come in handy a lot. Wine can be very boring. I'm, I'm very good at reading an audience and keeping people engaged. So, and projecting over loud, <laughs> over loud groups of people. So yeah, that's where I am now. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. Today, my guest is Leah Faith Williams. Leah is the owner and founder of New York City-based Let's Talk Wine. Originally from California, she arrived in New York City to pursue a career in performing arts and soon fell in love with wine. She has studied with WSET as well as the Society of Wine Educators. Let's Talk Wine has given her the opportunity to meet people from all walks of life and share her love of wine without the pressure of sales. Leah is currently studying to become a certified wine educator. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Leah. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thank you so much. I'm honored. I'm honored. It's a real treat, especially because, especially during this quarantine, I've gotten a little bit more into wine and I see you have a glass right now. May I ask what you're drinking right now? So I'm drinking a Marceau. It is a white burgundy. It's a French Chardonnay. It's really delicious. That sounds lovely. I wish I brought out my bottle. I I was just (laughs) having this amazing bottle of, it's uh, from Vinda, California, Pinot Noir. And nice. it, it's delicious. It has this nice cranberry taste that I really like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, you know, I will say that I'm not, I'm not much of a California wine drinker. I'm very much more into old world wines of France and Spain and Italy. And it's, it's been a challenge. <laughs> it's interesting because you're from California, but you're, you're more of an old, that's fair enough. And I want to ask you about all these terms that I'm only recently starting to become familiar with, like old world and, and yes. stuff like that. So I will ask you all of that. But first, we're going to do our current curiosities. So something that's recently sparked our interest. For me, I just watched this episode of Last Week Tonight on HBO, and John Oliver was talking about facial recognition software. And it was particularly relevant now because it turns out that law enforcement in some cases is using it to identify protesters. And even though it has super convenient uses, like when we like go into our iPhones, it's so easy to just you know have that face ID. It's also kind of scary to think about how it could go wrong. And so now this just got me super interested in a topic where you know I was like, oh, that, that seems pretty harmless. But the more I thought about it and the more I heard about it in this particular episode, I realized, whoa, like there's a lot of uses for this. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I, I read about just things that fra- facial recognition have, can, can do. So it is very interesting. I'm actually really curious right now about how, what, how our economy is going to change um just because of my business and trying to rethink how i'm doing things i i really took a couple of months to just do not much i I really didn't do anything since march and lately i've just been i have i have virtual tastings booked which i 
it's weird to me. I really don't like the virtual thing, but I have a lot of those coming up. And um, I had a tour that I had planned in New York of the Hudson Valley. So right now I'm really curious of just, you know, in California, people are out and are they spending money? Would they spend money <laughs> to go on a, a wine tour with me? I'm, I'm really curious about how the turn that our economy is going to make and yeah. how it can affect my just, business. Yeah, just today I was reading about restaurants in LA that have gotten pretty crafty with, you know, setting up tables in their parking lots or whatnot. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating to see which direction this is all going to go. And I wonder, so do you think like the first avenue that might open up there is maybe touring vineyards or outdoor venues probably first? Well, the outdoor venues, that's not so much the problem. It's it's getting to from winery to winery. So, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, right now I'm in Fresno and the Central Valley actually has a lot of wineries and some of them are really quite good. Um, but I've noticed that there are no tours and it's, it's scary to think that there are all these wineries and I have gone to tastings. Uh, they just, just this past weekend and they pour pours like not tasting pours. They pour actual glasses and you drink like seven glasses of wine and then you're supposed to drive. Mm. That's shocking to me. Um, in a tour, you don't drive and I think it would be much better. Um, but it, it is a matter of, you know, how comfortable people are being even on a small van with other people. And then if they, you know, that's a luxury item. So are people wanting to spend money on things like this or are we all just waiting to see if the world is going to come crashing down on us, you know? Yeah, that's a good segue into Let's Talk Wine and the cool events that you've been putting together. Can you tell me a little bit about how you started Let's Talk Wine? Yeah, awesome. So um, I actually was the wine director at a wine bar called Isa in Midtown Manhattan. They actually sponsored my wine education. And I started there as like a junior sommelier and I eventually took over their wine program. And when I was there, I would do training for the staff. And um, my, my boss and I thought of this idea to do, to, to offer mini wine tastings with our private parties. So I basically do a really short, like 30 minute guided wine tasting that could be added on to any of the private events. And people would ask me to do them for them outside of the restaurant and the restaurant would not allow me to do that. Um, and so then one random weekend, my cousin worked at LinkedIn at the time and their office is in Empire State Building. So he came with some colleagues and I was talking to them about wine. I said, you know, we're tasting this, it will go great with X, Y, and Z. And I just started Let's Talk Wine in my mind. I just had the name and that's it. And um, he was like, this is really great. And I was like, yeah, I just started my own business. It's called Let's Talk Wine. I go to offices and homes and I just talk about the wine. And they were like, that sounds amazing. Can you do one in our office next week for about 70 people? And I was like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. That's yeah. Um, I didn't even have business cards. <laughs> I, I had absolutely nothing. And then Hurricane Sandy came through and gave me some time to get it all together. But that was my first event and that was in 2013 and I have worked with LinkedIn multiple times, many big corporations. I've worked with Bank of America, Citibank, a lot of law firms, um, but I really like the in-home events because that's where I really get to talk. I like to talk about wine, just, you know, answer people's questions. You know, if you're in a restaurant, the sommelier doesn't really have that time to talk to you. 
and their job is to sell. My job is not to sell. My job is to answer your questions and make sure you have a good time and make sure that when I leave, you have at least three or four things that you'll remember the next time you're in a store or you're in a restaurant. So it's just, it's so much fun. It's so much fun for me. I can see why your performing arts background really comes in handy now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So the performing arts goes hand in hand with the actual education you had. And as somebody who's only just recently started to dabble, I'm so curious, like, how did you how did you decide I want to take the next step and actually, you know, pursue an education in wine, a legit education? Um, Well, you know, I did a lot of self-study. But I wanted to I wanted to know the nuts and bolts and the you know, I'm a geek when it comes to wine. I have so many wine books. I like the geeky nerdy things that I don't really get to talk about because nobody cares about altitudes and amount of sugars and this the you know degrees of the slopes. Nobody really cares about that. You have to be really, really into it. But that is very interesting to me. Um, and I really loved I love just studying how grapes can taste different just because they were grown somewhere different. It could be 25 miles away and you have a completely different product. Um, So it it was really something that I really enjoyed studying aside from, you know, performing arts. I really loved studying music. So this kind of was, it was the same. I just really liked the, the really nerdy geeky aspects of it. So if there's somebody now who throughout this quarantine has been getting really into wine and is maybe like you inspired and thinking about, okay, maybe this sounds really cool. What are some of the things that somebody can expect to learn as they're going through some of the programs you went to? Um, so you will, you will learn that it's a lot of geography, um, a lot of maps, <laughs> because that really dictates the final product where the grapes are being grown and the composition of the soil and really where it's placed in the earth. Um, so that was, a, that was actually shocking to me. Yes, you're gonna taste wine and you're gonna learn about the history, but it is a lot of geography and <laughs> maps, studying a lot of maps, a lot, a lot of maps and history. Goes, they, they really go hand in hand, the wine and the history. Yeah, like you just mentioned old world. And for the layperson who might not be familiar with that terminology in wine, can you give a brief intro of just like the major yeah. geography of wine? So really, generally speaking, old world is Europe. It's really anything in Europe. Um, anything outside of Europe is considered new world. So California, South America, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, even though a lot of these places have been making wine just as long as Italy, France, Spain, all of Europe, um, because it's outside of Europe, it's considered new world. And what in your experience, because you mentioned you stick to old world wines, what, what distinguishes old world wines for you? So old world wines tend to be earth driven. So they tend to be a lot, there's a lot more focus on the earth and the final product of the wine, kind of showcasing the vineyard and the land. Um, whereas here in the New World, mainly if we're just talking about California, the, the wines tend to be fruit driven. So you have a lot of fruit forward wines. And if you think about the climate in California, it's much warmer. Your warmer climate means that you're going to have a higher sugar content, which means a higher alcohol content for the Mm. most part. So a lot of your new world wines tend to be fruit driven, have a little more alcohol um, and slightly less balance in my opinion. Everybody tastes different things, um, but 
I, I really like the balance that I get out of um, old world wines. Yeah, the it's fascinating just how geography can have such a big effect and even the ways it can be similar. So, for example, I was reading this book. It's by Chris Stang, and I'm forgetting the person he co-wrote it with. But Chris Stang is uh, the founder of Infatuation, and he came out with a book about wine. I think it's called How to Drink Wine. And he was talking about how for like where the place is on the equator actually is super relevant. So yep. for example, you could, I'm, I might be totally confusing these, so please correct me, <laughs> but you could have, for example, a, a wine that came from the Willamette Valley in Oregon, and it might taste somewhat similar to a wine that came out of Spain. I want to say, I want to like, I'm not sure if those are out matching up on Burgundy. Out Sorry. Burgundy. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting to see how, Oh, that, I mean, obviously, you know, in your opinion, old world wines are far superior, but <laughs> you can, you can still get similarity. So if somebody is trying to navigate a wine shop and they might not have the first choice old world wine that they're looking for, there are ways of going about it to kind of get a decent consolation prize. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something that I, I kind of, I try to focus on in my private wine tastings is if you know what you like, then you can go into the store and if they don't have what you're used to drinking, you can say, Hey, I typically like this, you know, this Pinot Noir from Willamette. It's kind of smoky um, and, you know, nice and tart notes of vanilla. They will recommend something in the, with those flavor profiles. It may be Willamette Valley. It may be, um, even um, Argentina makes really beautiful uh, Pinot Noirs that are are kind of they kind of toe the line between old world and new world, or they may have a really nice um, Burgundy or Pinot Nero, which is a Pinot Noir from Italy that they could provide that they could offer to you. Um, but it's nice just to know what you like because if that is something that you like, you wouldn't really you wouldn't go with something from Napa or Sonoma because mm. the flavor profiles are different. So it's good to know just, just a few notes, just a few things to say to, to just let people know what you tend to like to drink. And um, then you can, you can feel comfortable trying other things within that flavor profile and discover new wines. So how did you personally get good at figuring out what you like? I, I, I'm sorry if that's a dumb question. I know the obvious answer is, partially go and drink some wines yeah. <laughs> but but beyond that how did you get good at realizing what kind of wines you like you know i worked in a lot of high-end restaurants um and so i worked with a lot of french sommeliers that would say smell this taste this mm -hmm. and that's really how i realized that i liked i liked earthier wines i liked more complexity in my wines um i know for when it comes to red wines i like my red wines to smell like a barn and a horse's ass. And I'm from Fresno, so I know what that smells like. <laughs> and, and when I mean Fresno, it's annoying, but in wine, that's what I like. Um, but it was a lot of people saying, here, taste this. This is what you're tasting. This is what you're smelling. This is how this is made. And that's why you taste X, Y, and Z. Or this is what is in the soil. And that's why you taste this, this, and this. Um, so it was a lot of tasting, but it was guided. It wasn't just drinking random, random wines. <laughs> yeah. So for somebody like me, again, who's a total novice at this, could you break down what WSET means? Because I know there are different different schools of, of wine. So if you could yeah. just explain so some of them. WSET is Wine Spirit Education Trust. It's internationally recognized. And it's a really great 
starting point for anyone because there are courses that you could take as just an everyday person who's not looking to be in the industry but just wants to be well versed in wine um, but there are also courses for hospitality professionals there are courses that are geared specifically you may not want to be a sommelier maybe you're going to open a restaurant and you just want to know what to buy what to put on your wine list there are courses like that and then there are your courses for you know to be your your diploma uh, certifications, which are sommelier certifications. So I always recommend uh, WSCT for begin as like a good starting ground. Um, but then you have the Court of Sommeliers, which is another course that you can go. I study a lot with Society of Wine Educators because my focus is more on education and less on you know sales. And I don't want to be on the floor. I don't want to be on this Assam on the floor. Um, so there are there are a few different avenues, but that's a great one. Um, American Sommelier Association is another good one. Um, in New York, we have the International Culinary Institute, um, which you can take, again, great entry-level courses that will help you just be more comfortable with food and wine. So there are a lot of a lot of ways to go, but also just, you know taking classes i used to take i used to teach classes at a wine store and it's a great way to taste wine and learn about it there is that sales pressure because really they want you to buy wine i was yeah. terrible at it because i i don't want to sell the wine <laughs> I just, i'll just be like hey you want to taste this let's open this bottle let's taste it together and not offer people not try to get people to buy wine and that's why i didn't last very long there <laughs> fair enough so how it's interesting though you mentioned that the education is different between a place that might be more sales driven versus like the school you went to where it's more education focused. So what did, what are, what are some of the differences um, in what they're teaching you between those? So the, the, the facts are the same. You're going to learn for the most part, you know, you're, you're going to learn your great varietals and you're going to mm -hmm. learn the geography and the history, the regions, all of the Appalachians, all of those things you have to have an understanding of. The approach is different. Um, sommelier is a service position. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is, a, you're meant to be able to sell wine, um, preferably in a restaurant environment. So that's different than being able to talk to someone about wine and just explain to them what they may be drinking or what they may be tasting, you know? So it's, it's the same, it's getting on the bike a different way, so to speak. The same education, but we really want, we just have different ways of, of giving that, that sharing that, edu that education that we have. Yeah. And this is, a, this has been a great time for me to personally learn because I have a little extra time. So I was like, why not? And yeah. how, how have you been conducting virtual tastings? How has that worked for you? So, um, as I said, when, when everything shut down, I just kind of shut down. Um, I, and a lot of my colleagues and influencers were just popping up with all these virtual things and I didn't want any part of it whatsoever. So now what I, the way I do my virtual tastings, I make it very easy. It's basically, what do you have at home? Um, grab some friends. We can have a theme, let's say all Italian. Everybody brings an Italian wine. We hop on Zoom and we, we taste the wine just the same way I would do in any of my other tastings. So we're going to look at the color. We're going to smell the wine. We're going to talk about what you're tasting. Um, but everybody is bringing something different. 
and there's no wine snobbery. So it doesn't matter if your bottle was $5.99 or if your bottle was $599. We're going to explore what's in your glass. Um, and it's, it's really great because people do, they bring what they have or they'll bring a bottle that they've been wanting to try. And then everybody else gets to learn about different, different bottles of wine. Um, so that's how I've been doing them. And it's been really great. It's been really great for me, but it, it did take me, it took me a while to ease into it. I just didn't want to. <laughs> I just didn't want to. <laughs> I like that you mentioned there's no wine snobbery because I think one of the things that's held back my friends and I from delving into wine has been just, it can be very intimidating, right? Yeah. Especially when you have terms like old world being thrown around and somebody has no idea what you're talking about, like me. So how do you, how do you go about, you know, teaching wine and educating people about wine in a way that is accessible? Um, you know, I like to tell people, A, you need to drink what you like. So if you like fruit forward wines, there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to stick with that one particular wine. We can find you a ton of different wines with those flavor profiles from different different regions, and that's how you learn. Um, but pricing should not stop you. There are great wines in just about every price point. So if you want to spend ten dollars, I can recommend some bottles of wine that are really great that are ten dollars. Um, if you like barefoot whatever, that's fine. But I can also recommend some things that are in line with some of those flavors. Um, we all have our own snobbery. Which <laughs> it just, it is what it is. But when I'm doing my tastings and when I'm talking to people, I, I try very hard not to say, I don't drink this or I don't drink that. If I'm served a glass of wine that I don't like, I won't say anything. I just won't drink it. And that has happened. But, you know, just because just because I don't care for it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it. That's mm -hmm. fine. I just like people to know that there are there's just so much out there. And especially with America being the last to jump on the wine bandwagon, where we're now the, the largest consumers of wine. Um, we consume more wine now than France and Spain and Italy. And so everybody wants our money. And there are wines that are made specifically for the American palate, which tends to be sweeter. We, we tend to like sweeter things. Um, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't like that, but you should definitely try different things because there's, there's some not great stuff out there that you can get for the same price as something that's really great. Yeah. So some of your events, it sounds like people are coming in with their own bottles. And it sounds mm -hmm. like sometimes they defer to you for what bottles, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my, the great thing about Let's Talk Wine is that, like I said, I don't sell the wine. Um, and my wine events are all custom. So I would speak to my clients and I would say, okay, what do you like? And they say, well, we tend to like Rieslings and we don't like Chardonnay. And if you tell me that you don't like something, I'm definitely going to bring it. <laughs> and I will show you that you maybe you just don't like a certain style, sure. but this is in line with some of the things that you've liked. And nine times out of 10, they're like, wow, this is really great. Um, so, and I bring everything. So I bring the wine, I bring wine glasses, I bring cheese platters, I bring absolutely everything, but it is based on what my clients like. And, and I try to use everything as, as a teaching moment. So that sounds super fun, first off. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. 
And secondly, so as I've been learning a little bit more recently, there's talk about, you know, the right wine glass. Is there a right wine glass? How is, is that all just hype or is there, does it actually kind of matter? It, it matters to a certain extent. So for your everyday glass of wine, do you need a specific glass? No, you really don't. Um, I have nice glasses that I miss while I'm at my parents' house and they don't have them. But for the most part, you want, you don't want to pour, I'll just, I mean, this is a podcast so they can't see, um, but you, you really don't ever want to pour to the top of the glass. And if you're drinking a, an older, heavier wine, you want to make sure that you can swirl and you can aerate the wine. So that's why you see these really nice bulbous glasses. Those are Bordeaux glasses. Um, and so, yes, it does make a difference to a certain extent. But your everyday glass of wine, open it, pour it into the glass, maybe swirl it a little, give it some air, and then enjoy. So does it matter at all if it's stemless or with a stem, in your opinion? It does, because you don't want to warm up the glasses. Yeah. Um, so the stemless glasses look really nice, but then you're constantly have your hand over the glass and red or white, there you don't want to warm the wine up. Um, so I prefer stems, but if I'm at someone's home, I will drink out of a coffee cup if that's what <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. So when when a company like LinkedIn or or somebody else is approaching you and they just they give you their preferences and from there you put together a list, a wine list, yeah. right? Yes. And so sometimes there's a theme. How do you let can you give me an example of a time maybe you had a theme and you found wines to match the theme? That sounds super fun. Yeah. So um I mean I do this often. So I've done um typically they they will say Right before everything shut down, I did um, a women in wine tasting. So all of the wines were from women winemakers. And then mm -hmm. we talked about their journeys in, in wine and their ups and downs. Um, that wasn't too difficult. I have done regional themes, so all Italian wines. Um, we do, with corporate events, there's oftentimes a theme that, you know, like we did a Halloween Halloween, sure. all of the wine was paired with candy, with Halloween candy. And so when you went to the station, it would say, try this Chardonnay with this Reese's peanut butter cups. And there was Reese's peanut butter cups. Um, champagne, I think we did Prosecco with Starburst. Um, so that was really fun. It's really fun. And people then, you know, they learn a little bit, but they have a good time with, with it. And they realize that wine doesn't have to be intimidating. People make it that way, but it doesn't have to be intimidating. Those are the coolest pairings I've ever heard of. That's <laughs> incredible. And pairings are their own kind of fun science. Could yeah. you talk a little bit about finding, you know, the right pairings, especially for something as fun as Starburst? That's so cool. Yeah, I mean, that's the fun part. That's like the drinking and the tasting. That's that's the fun part. Um, so there's two ways your want your pairings can go. They can be kind of complementary, where your, your wine is going to bring out flavors. So you have something that's smoky and you're going to pair it with food that's, that has some smoky notes and it's going to really accentuate that. Or you can do contrasting. So sweet and salty mm -hmm. or spicy and sweet, things like mm -hmm. that. Um, and I, I think that those are really fun ways to pair food and wine. And there are just like some really great classic pairings. So for instance, 
Riesling is sweet. It's a sweeter wine. It goes great with anything spicy. Anything spicy, is, it's going to be a really nice pairing. Um, but also that sweet goes great with salty as well. Um, if you're going to do the canceling out type of thing where they're sweet with sweet, that's, really, that's a really great way to pair again because what happens when you have a dessert wine is it kind of cancels out the sweetness. So your dessert wine and your dessert tastes less sweet and it's just a little more enjoyable. Um, but it's, it's really fun. It's really fun. And like I said, there's some classic pairings. So for instance, like I said, the sweet and salty or sweet and spicy, then there are some big no-no's. So you don't really, you don't ever want to pair a big hearty red wine with, um, fish, mm. um, caviar, smoked anything. You can get this metallic aftertaste, which we don't like. Um, it's actually in some parts of the world, it's something that people do appreciate, but I can tell you that if that's not what you're going for, it's going to be terrible. I, I was doing an uh, Amarone tasting, so it's a really rich red wine, and there was a caviar tasting going on behind me at the restaurant. So they brought over caviar, and I knew it was a bad idea, but there was caviar, so I wanted to eat it. And it was the worst it was the worst pairing because caviar is very delicate and salty. And then you have these like big, bold, earthy red wines. It was, a, it was a mess. It was I find that so interesting. The, the blessing and the curse of how wine can either enhance or mm -hmm. really take away from whatever you're eating. Depending yeah. Depending on how you pair it. Exactly. For the most part, it doesn't take away. They can, it can do nothing. Like, sure. you know, it can do nothing, but when it clashes, it's, it's, it's bad. And I do tell people red wine, it tends to be harder to pair. So if you're going to put a cheese platter together, pour white wine, you're, you're more likely to have complimentary pairings um, with a white wine and a cheese board than to grab some red wine and cheese. You, you could go, you could go wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. So I'm curious, like at this point, how are you finding new wines that interest you? Uh, well, because I'm in California, um, I'm actually starting this week, every week I'm visiting a new winery and I'm just really trying to open myself up to California wines and, and just, I, I've tasted wines that I've liked. Um, there are few and far between and I, and, but I mean, in, in California, it's just all you find is California wine and, um, just really trying to find gems. I really, even before I moved to New York, I've been a fan of the Central Coast. So I used to, my first time wine tasting, I went to San Luis Obispo and Paso Robles. And they're just really beautiful wineries there, boutique wineries, they make beautiful wines. You get to meet the winemakers, understand what, what they are getting out of it, why they're making the wine. So right now I'm just trying to discover some new California wineries and and talk to winemakers you know that's it's really fun for yeah me. and I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the central coast because until you know I became into wine recently I think a lot of people when they think of California wine they think of Napa mm -hmm. right but the central coast I mean there are different regions within California yeah. Napa being one of them but the central coast is a great great spot especially Paso Robles has a Paso ton Robles. of really cool wineries yeah, Paso Robles, San Luis, Lodi, the entire, you know, the entire Central Coast 
is beautiful for winemaking. And I think a lot of people don't realize how small Napa is. It's very, very small. So the, there's limits on to as to what can come out of Napa um, that is 100% Napa grown. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Paso Robles, or even where I am in the Central Valley, there are just, just so much. There's so much that's grown here. And, um, and it's a lot to explore. It's something that I really love about California. It's, you can drive anywhere in California and there's wineries. Yeah. Literally, you can't, you can't go anywhere and not be close to a winery. <laughs> They're everywhere. Um, so I'm, I'm really just trying to explore California wine. It's, it's my, my uh, assignment that I've given myself. <laughs> and why is it that wherever you go in California, you can find, is it a matter of climate? Is it a matter of yeah. a new word I learned recently? Terroir, <laughs> right? Is it, is it, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Is it a, ref- what is it a reflection of? Um, it's, it's mainly, a lot of it is the climate in California. I mean, obviously, I don't know if you're from, uh, I am, yeah, from LA. Yeah. Yeah. So it's warm. It's warm all the time, the majority of the time. And even the cold isn't very cold. So you have a nice long growing, um, growing period. And especially here in the Central Valley. So the San Joaquin Valley actually produces the vast, a vast amount of grapes, um, it's hot here. It is a desert. It is very, very hot. It's dry. We don't get a lot of rain. We get just barely enough for all the crops that are grown here. Um, too much rain can cause mold on your grapes. If it gets hot too fast, then your grapes kind of ripen too soon before you can pick them. And that's also a problem. And what happens is they, they look like they're really ripe, but they don't have a lot um, of flavor. So then what are you making wine out of? Um, but for the most part, the climate in California is, it just allows you so much flexibility. Um, and we have in California, you can go to Northern California where it's cooler. You can go to Southern California where it's warmer, but regardless, all of them, all of California is, is relatively mild when you, when you think about the temperatures. So that's really what makes California great for growing just about everything you know we're the fruit basket of the world where fresno is um (laughs) everything is grown here so that's really great but then depending on the regions the soil the terroir also contributes a lot and then how close you are to the ocean contributes a lot and the fog contributes a lot it kind of blankets the grapes and gives gives a layer of protection so in Napa and even in the Central Coast, you have the fog that covers the grapes and then the sun isn't directly beaming down on the grapes. It's mm. kind of a slow burn. Um, and it's much, much better than like I said, like direct heat and then your grapes kind of burn or they, they grow too soon, too fast. So yeah, California's ideal for growing most things. Interesting. Of the, you mentioned there are a few California wines you've discovered that you do like. Any that you care to recommend or are you still working your way through them? Um, I like Ramsey Chardonnay. I, I have to look at the labels because I don't, I don't look at, I like to look at labels like, oh, this is beautiful. Um, but I, I don't take note of things. I like keep the bottles around. So I have to look at the bottles. Um, but for the most part, the wines that I like are these really small boutique wineries that you don't even really see them. You may see them here in California, but outside of California, forget it. 
Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't have names to recommend. Fair enough. <laughs> I like that you keep the bottles though, which actually leads me to my next question. What do you look for? Let's say you're at a wine shop and not actually at the winery. What do you look for when you're perusing a wine shop and you're looking at the bottles? What are you looking for in the bottles? Um, so when I'm looking at new world wines, they're typically labeled by the varietal. So the grape. And sometimes I look to see if I can find some lesser known grapes. I really like Gringolino, which is a grape that's, it's grown a lot in Italy, more in Italy, but um, Heights Winery makes a really nice Gringolino. Um, so I look for the grapes, I look for the varietal, and I try to see if it is a grape that is typically not grown here. You know, if you think of California, most of the time you think of Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet, but if you see Barbera or you see uh, Grenache is grown around here as well, things like this, I like to try those just to see what, what, what they're doing with them, you know, and compare it to the old world um, counterparts. So one thing I've been looking at in addition to the kind of varietal is, you know, these buzzwords that have come up like natural or biodynamic, organic, low sulfite. How do you go educating people about some of these more in vogue terms? So um, sulfites are a huge thing. I like to tell people you cannot get wine without sulfites. It is actually, it's a natural occurring part of the fermentation process. Sulfites, it's just, it just, you can't get wine without them. Um, but it is also a preservative. So wineries will add additional sulfites to wines. It's not a bad thing. Some people are sensitive to them. It's not what causes headaches. Um, dehydration causes headaches. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, if you look on the label, you may see a label that says no sulfites added. That just means there's no additional sulfites. Um, some people can tell the difference in the wine. Some people cannot. When it comes to biodynamic and organic and um, things like this, these are important labels. Um, organic is actually an American label. So you won't see the USDA organic label on wines that are not from the States because it's, it's, an, it's a USDA thing. Biodynamic is actually internationally recognized. And if a wine is biodynamic, it actually has to start off being organic. So again, some people swear by biodynamic wines. And it gets really interesting because with biodynamic wines, there are certain wines that actually apparently taste better on certain days. And you should drink them on specific days. I drink what I feel like opening <laughs> on that particular day. So that doesn't really work for me. And I haven't Personally, I don't see the big difference um, between the bi biodynamic wines and the non-biodynamic wines. Some people do. Some winemakers swear by it. Um, I, I, didn't, I haven't really tasted a difference. Wait, this is fascinating. So there are some biodynamic wines that are suggested to be had like on a Sunday. You'll, you'll, you'll get a better oh, taste on a Sunday versus Monday. No, <laughs> there are... <laughs> air days and leap days i have to i'm like thinking back to my training it's so if the wine is a leap wine it should be drunk it should be consumed on a day that is a leap day and your wine will taste better on those days it's a lot it's a lot 
to think about. <laughs> what is a leaf day? Is that related to astrology? What, what is the it is. reference? It all okay. goes by the moon. Yeah. Everything with biodynamic wines goes by the moon and also just making sure that nothing goes to waste. Mm -hmm. So using everything when it comes to fertilizing and pesticides, it's all natural. And, and when you harvest, it's all according to the moon. Um, so it gets really deep. It creeped me out actually when I was studying <laughs> it. So I, I don't really, I don't, I don't really prescribe to that, but I find it very interesting. It's just that I drink what I feel like drinking when I yeah. feel like it. <laughs> yeah. That, that sounds more fun to me as well. So if somebody wants to set up a dinner party, for example, and they're fairly new to wine, what, what would you suggest besides like obviously start with some a kind of wine you and your friends like? Do you have any suggestions for yeah, people who are trying do. to do what you do on a, on a, on a more micro level for the time yeah, being? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I would always suggest having a red and a white and go with um, user-friendly grapes. So Sauvignon Blanc is super user-friendly. It's very, very easy to pair. Most people like it. You can find something that's more fruit forward. You can find something that's dry, but it's very easy to pair Sauvignon Blanc with a meal. Um, and the same goes for Pinot Noirs. Now, Pinot Noirs tend to be a little more pricey. Um, I typically suggest not the Pinot Noir, but to go with a Beaujolais, which is the Gamay grape. Again, it's a lighter wine, but it has really nice substance and it is very food friendly. It pairs really well. They're both relatively light. Well, Sauvignon Blancs are medium bodied. Uh, the Pinot Noir, the Gamay is a lighter bodied wine. So it can go throughout your meal from start to finish. Um, but it's always nice to have a red and a white so that people can have an option. Gamay, is that the region or the kind of grape? Because I know sometimes it... Got yeah, it. Because I know great. sometimes depending on the country, you'll refer to the grape or you'll refer to the region, yeah. right? So in America, we refer to the grape. And in Europe, all over Europe, it, it's where the grape is being grown. So Beaujolais is a region in France that grows 90% Gamay, 10% Pinot Noir. Um, Sancerre is a region in France. They grow Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc grapes. Sauvignon Blanc grapes. Um, but because, like I said, Americans are such big consumers in wine, a lot of these wines now that are being imported to the States will also say the grape on the label. So it will say Bourgogne and then it will say Chardonnay. So it's a white, it's a, a white Bourgogne Blanc. So you're not as confused. Got it. That's good to know. What's your favorite region personally within the old world? Champagne. <laughs> I am, enough. I'm a champagne drinker. It's where I spend, unfortunately, all of my money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on champagne. I just, I really love champagne. I love grower champagnes, which are small productions, um, very small productions and just well-crafted bubbly that ages well. And it's very, very, very delicious. I can never say no to champagne. It's the way to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds lovely. Before we get into some fun rapid fire questions, I'm just personally curious when it comes to wine storage, how intense should someone get? Do they need a wine fridge? Do they need, what do they need? So you don't need a wine fridge. If you don't, if you're not buying super pricey wines that you're looking to hold on to for years, you don't need a wine fridge. I do suggest storing your wine, all of your wine in the refrigerator. 
um, especially if you know that you're going to get, you know, a case of wine and you're not going to drink it all within the next couple of weeks. Store it in the refrigerator on its side. You always want the cork to be in touch with the wine so the cork doesn't dry out. Um, but your refrigerator will stay at a steady temperature. You don't want your temperature going up and down. So, you know, if you put your, if you just have your wine out, you go to work, you don't have the air conditioner on, it gets hot, then you come home, you turn the air conditioner on, the temperature drops, there's that. That's really bad for the wine. Um, you can put it in the refrigerator. If it's a red wine, take it out about 30, 45 minutes before you want to drink it. It's a white wine, take it, about, take it out about 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes before you want to drink it and you'll be fine. But your, your wine will, will just be better taken care of if it's at a steady temperature. And if we have anyone listening in New York, are there any wine shops you recommend there or places you like to frequent? Uh, yes, I love Verve, which is a wine store in Tribeca. Um, I shop actually a lot at Aster wine and spirits which is a big wine store downtown um i live uptown and we have a great wine store called vines on pine um which is in washington heights right overlooking the hudson river and it's great selection great selection of wines but i i do think i recommend all the time to wine lovers to just find a store an actual wine store um and frequent that wine store so that you have a relationship with the salespeople. They tend to be sommeliers. They usually have tasted everything um, and they can give good recommendations. Yeah, that's something I've heard a lot recently from people who work in wine is actually don't shop at a grocery store if you don't have to. If you can go to a wine shop, it's actually a way better experience. Yeah, we don't we don't <laughs> shop at grocery stores in New York for wine. It's not a thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a California thing and yeah. some other places, but I I have noticed that yeah there is not the best selection at Vons here, but you can't. I mean, if you can find some decent wine, but you know, even here in Fresno, I have found a couple of really nice wine stores. Um, still very California heavy, but they have great selections, really great selections, and don't let don't let price stop you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in LA, we're blessed with some awesome wine shops. I'm a big fan of Tabula Raza out here, but you can get super niche, like you're saying. Like, uh, we have a place called Tilda that only mm -hmm. serves natural, I think they only do natural California wines. So, wow. you can get super cool? specific. Yeah, it's a, it's a wine shop. Well, I think they were originally, before all this COVID madness, they were they're having dine in, but they've completely, a lot, like a lot of wine bars, they've pivoted now to retail for the time being. Yeah. And I think gradually, they'll switch back to dine-in as well. But yeah, we're, we're blessed if you're in LA or New York. Um, but even like you're saying, you don't have to be in LA or New York to have a cool right. wine shop nearby. Yeah. yeah, they're popping up everywhere because people love wine and they just want to try new things. But once once you kind of become a regular and, and people know you they and they know what you like, then when you walk in a couple of months later, they'll say, oh, hey, Ben, I got this great Chardonnay and I think you would love it. I would love for you to try it. I have one open because they open it and they taste it all the time. So have a wine store and be, be a regular at a store. And for people who start getting super enthusiastic, where do you stand on wine clubs? I'm, I'm not opposed to them. Um, I'm not opposed to wine clubs. I think especially if it's um, directly from the winery, mm -hmm. it's the best way to go. Because, you know, there is a, it's not a, it's, it's the profit margin is very low. 
mm -hmm. um, with wineries. So if you can buy directly from a wine club that's directly from a winery, then you're, you're really supporting a local business and, um, and they need all of that support. They really need that support. So I, I think if you're going to join a wine club, then it should be winery specific, in my opinion. As opposed to through a retailer, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So if somebody's interested in learning about wine, you mentioned there are certain books that you enjoyed reading. Can you recommend any of them? Yes. If you're a beginner, um, The Windows of the World Wine Class, it's a book from Kevin's Rally. That was my first book and actually my first wine class that I took. Um, and then Wine Folly, which is written by... Um, woman master psalm and she just breaks everything down makes everything really really simple to understand so i'm i i think wine folly is you gotta have that's the wine bible it's, awesome it's yeah really so many people have recommended wine folly to me i have to yes. check it out for sure yeah definitely do that but kevin zirali's book is excellent it's really really great so those are my I'll, I'll my check out those. Go -tos. yeah thank you Fascinating. Man, I, I've learned so much. This is amazing. Awesome. Thank you. We'll, we'll wind down with some fun rapid fire questions. Yes. What's an app that you can't live without? Instagram. <laughs> Who would you like to play you in a movie about your life? A Regina King. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I love her. If you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? To make men fall in love with me. <laughs> <laughs> Very elusive skill. <laughs> What's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? Australia. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. And what's your jam? Is it a song you like to jam to? Um, <laughs> it is Grown Woman from Beyonce. <laughs> love it. Love it. And for our friends who are listening, who'd love to learn more about you and Let's Talk Wine, where can they find you on social media and online? Yeah. So I am Lovely Wine Lady on Instagram and Twitter. And my website is letstalkwinenyc.com. Um, so I keep my website posted with events that I'm doing, public events and any private events that you may be interested in. You can reach me at... Um, www.letstalkwinenyc.com or through social media. I'm lovely wine lady again. Amazing. And now people who aren't in New York can get your insight as well, right? Through virtual yeah, tastings. Exactly. I'm doing virtual tastings now. So no matter where you are, grab a bottle and some friends and we'll have a great time. It's a lot of fun. Is there a limit on how many people or is there a range of how many people you like to keep it to? Yeah, I like to keep it to 15. Mm -hmm. Um, just because after that, it, it, gets, a, it gets to be a lot. Um, but 10 to 15 is like a really great number. But awesome. I do it as, as low as two people. I don't have a minimum. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. And if uh, anybody's listening and would like to check out the pod, you can find us on Instagram at HDYDPod. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited.